Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week, a topic that uh, we've been meaning to address, and finally we're getting around to it. The data point there is $500 billion. That is the overall value recently achieved by the Danish pharmaceutical manufacturer Novo Nordisk. Stronger than expected profits powered by sales of anti-obesity and diabetes drugs, Wagovi and Ozempic, and the company expects demand for those two products to continue strong in 2024. Joining us now, to a fresh all-time high today after posting supersized fourth quarter results. The drug maker sales rising 36% on a constant currency basis, boosted by the popularity of its obesity drugs. Novo now anticipating 2024 sales to grow by as much as 26%. That makes it the second European company to ever break that half trillion dollar market cap barrier. And that also makes its value larger than the GDP of Denmark, the country where it's based. And there's no real surprise for that explosive growth. Even if you haven't heard of Novo Nordisk itself, you probably are familiar by this point with several of the drugs it has recently started manufacturing. Ozempic is the anti-obesity drug that has taken off dramatically around the world. Uh, The demand for that drug is what has driven up the valuation of this company. So we thought we would dig into that explosive growth, what it means for um, Denmark and what it means for the rest of the world, given the anti-obesity drug that is so popular right now. So Adam, I thought we could start with some history. The breakthrough by Novo Nordisk with this anti-obesity drug may be due in part to its corporate structure with the company owned, as I was reading, by a nonprofit foundation. So I was curious, why did the company end up with this sort of setup and how has that contributed to its research advances? Yes, it's a fascinating, rather inspiring model in many ways, I think, because the company owes its history, its entire history, really, to the century-long struggle with diabetes as a, as a problem and the extraordinary discovery of insulin in the aftermath of World War One And the uh, Nordisk bit of the conglomerate was set up by a doctor called August Krogh and his and his wife, also a doctor, uh, Marie Krogh, who suffered from diabetes. And Krogh was a very distinguished uh, Danish professor. He'd, he'd won the Nobel Prize for earlier medical research. And in 22, following the discovery of insulin, um, they get permission from Frederick Banting and Charles Best, the Canadian scientist team that had discovered insulin, to start production of insulin in Denmark. And they become one of the world's leading producers of insulin and diabetes drugs. And then in 1989, merge with... So they set up uh, Nordisk Insulin Laboratorium and then a, a, a parallel organization, the, the Novo side of the combination operated, Nova Industry operated as a competitor. And in 1989, the two merged. And they do operate as a not-for-profit. It's a little bit similar, I think, to the Wellcome uh, Labs, which also um, you know, are based on a 
corporate foundation which operates on a not-for-profit basis so this is a you know it's it's kind of a an obvious combination if you're in the pharmaceutical space if you're in the coming out of the sort of you know medical ethics the notion of a hippocratic oath presumably would mean that the production of you know health bringing drugs should have priority above profit i think it's a very attractive idea one wonders why you know if you can run globally competitive businesses like this not more of them are essentially owned by foundations i guess you could argue that foundations are better off spreading their risk and having portfolios like say the gates foundation presumably spreads its risk across a whole variety of investments in any case it's an interesting combination of very large scale charity not for profit operation i think it's an attractive idea that this would stimulate greater you know research effort except that in this case of course the research effort is directed towards diseases which overwhelmingly affect rich countries and for which there is an absolutely gigantic market which is hugely profitable if you succeed and so there's no lack of incentive for privately owned companies to do this sort of research as well it would be more telling if they were a huge player in diseases of poor countries like malaria for instance and they have recently begun to devote some of their wealth to that kind of research but that isn't the the stem right the stem here is essentially a you know, it's a Danish kind of story, extraordinarily affluent, successful West European society focused on the sorts of problems that afflict above all rich countries. Of course, diabetes doesn't just affect only rich countries, but that's where the problem is most heavily concentrated. And there really isn't any lack of you know, profit-driven incentive to invest in weight loss drugs, as we're, as we're currently discovering. And the stock market is, after all, massively rewarding, you know, that, that, that research. I mean, is there a less sort of seemly side to this corporate structure then? I mean, is it uh, motivated by tax avoidance? Is no, that, no, no, no. That, that's not my, that's not the argument I'm making. No, it's just that I think the rather neat formula that somehow, you know, in this case, we would, we, you know, we believe that, um, that the idea that somehow a not-for-profit structure encourages a particular type of research, which then produces these kind of benefits would, you know, if, if they were driving you know, malaria research on a huge scale and actually trying to fix a disease that affects a primarily poor people, that will be one thing. But that's not the case here. This isn't, that's no knock on them. They do, they do insulin, you know, research like, you know, no one else in the world, good for them. But it's just, I think that sort of simple, simple segue from a, from a not-for-profit structure to benign, you know, to particularly worthy research outcomes doesn't, you know, when you think about it, it doesn't seem to stand up very well in this case. So let's get some sense of scale here. How big exactly is Novo Nordisk compared to the overall Danish economy then? I mean, I mentioned that the market cap is, is bigger than the Danish GDP. I'm curious, what sort of distortions does that introduce in trying to evaluate the Danish economy per se? I mean, it is a very big business in a relatively small economy. You shouldn't underestimate Denmark, though. I mean, it's a very, very rich country. So so just one company in a very rich country like that is not quite as dominant as one would expect. But according to the Danish statistical office, the pharmaceutical sector drove the overwhelming majority of economic growth in Denmark in, in, recent, in recent years. And within that sector, Novododisk is overwhelmingly the dominant player. But as a matter of principle, there's a sort of... There's a there's a point we should put across here, which is that comparing stock market capitalization with GDP is apples and oranges, right? Because one is a stock, a valuation of a stock, and the other one is a flow of 
produce of services of goods and services at market values over time and so they're not the thing that it makes sense to compare would be Nova Nordisk's value added which will be the sum of profits and employment and wages to Danish GDP and if you do that you end up with rather more modest valuations because Nova Nordisk global employment is in the order of 60,000 people that's so just it isn't the case in fact I think a very large share of them work outside Denmark but just assume they all did work in Denmark. There's almost 3 million people working in the Danish economy. So that would be 2% of Danish employment. If you look at tax revenue, and a lot of these made as the fact that Nova Nordisk now pays the largest amount of tax in, in Denmark, it's the largest single tax pay. It pays $1.3 billion in corporation tax. Denmark's tax revenue is about $50 billion. So again, it's about 2% of Denmark's tax revenue. And, and this is not surprising. I mean, think about, you know, New York City, for instance, has an economy larger than that of Denmark, right? There are 4 million plus people working in the private sector in New York City, closer to 5 million if you count the public sector workers as well. The biggest employers in New York City, I checked, private employers, not public employers, so not, you know, the metro, the subway and whatever, but private employers are things like JP Morgan or Citigroup. So JP Morgan has almost 30,000 staff in the New York City area. Citigroup is is a little bit lower than that. And of course, JP Morgan has a big footprint in New York City, but it doesn't overwhelm it. There's plenty of places you can go in the city where you don't see JP Morgan. That I think is, you know, if you go to Denmark, the first thing you see will not be, you know, this corporation everywhere. It's not a it's not a one company nation. But the growth in Novo Dondisk is what really matters. And that's the kicker, right? Is that this relatively small part of a big complex economy, which includes also other global players like Maersk, for instance, the shipping firm, has grown really rapidly, has popped. And so that's at the margin what's driving the the growth. And it's at the margin distorting the economy in various ways because you suddenly get this kind of growth surge. But it is very important, you know, and then quite a lot of the kind of globalization literature as well, people make these comparisons where they say X corporation is bigger than the following nations. And more often than not, it's not, you know, if you pick the right small country and the right big company, that can actually make sense. But generally speaking, it's based on comparing you know, stocks with flows or wealth with income. And obviously income is a flow and wealth is a stock and income saving. So on accumulate over time to make big stocks. And so there's a there's a sort of tendency to, you know, exaggerate and misrepresent. But there's no doubt at all. It's a big player in the Danish economy. It makes a substantial difference at the margin and its recent growth has really sort of shaken up and, and propelled growth in, in parts of the Danish society. Yeah, I mean, there have been other examples of outsized companies in relatively small countries and that introducing certain kinds of distortions in the economy. I mean, one example that's repeatedly cited in this context is is Finland and its reliance or over-reliance on, on Nokia, the cell phone manufacturer. You know, that, that was a great boon to the Finnish economy. Eventually, Nokia suffered and turned south and that uh, seem to have ne- negative impacts on the entire country. I'm just curious, yeah, how did that work out in, in Finland? And, and, and yeah, how does that example apply to, to Denmark? The, yeah, the Nokia example became notorious. Again, it's worth putting in perspective, right? So between 1998 and 2007, a quarter of Finland's GDP growth was due to the Nokia Corporation. So not all of Nokia, not all of Finland's GDP growth, but a quarter once you added in all of the knock-on effects. And again, Finland is 
a relatively small economy, about 2.6 million people employed there. So it's like two of New York's boroughs, if you wanted to compare it. It would be like, or just say maybe the Manhattan economy. That's that's how big it is. So if you la- if you play, say, globally relevant cell phone manufacturer in an economy the size of Manhattan, of course, it will ripple and affect the entire, entire economy. Nokia's sudden decline after 2007-8 with the release of the Apple smartphone undoubtedly constituted a drag on the Finnish economy in the 2010s. I think Denmark's hope would be, A, that it is simply a more robust, more diverse economy than Finland, and um, which it undoubtedly is, and B, that Novo Nordisk's um, outlook is relatively more secure. I mean, the, the patents on uh, Novo Nordisk's uh, key you know, molecules are solidly in place till the early 2030s. So that, I think, you know, secures a, a relatively stable path. But no doubt folks in Denmark will be interested in looking to ensure that this doesn't come to, to dominate. There's an interesting cluster of countries for which this sort of question arises. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a little bit odd to turn what is obviously a huge success story into a problem. But if you look down the list, it's quite telling. So, you know, Nokia in Finland, but then like uh, TSMC in Taiwan, where you have this extraordinary potent semiconductor manufacturer, which plays an outsides role in its economy. I think, you know, these are all instances where what you'd be looking for is a concerted effort, a diversification, so as to avoid the risks of commercial downfall leading to disaster. On the other hand, in the meantime, the obvious thing to do is to just keep investing and just keep innovating so as to maintain the competitive edge. Because, you know, to warn small countries against having a globally competitive player is obviously a completely perverse position to adopt. You can't very well say, look, your country is just too small to take the risk of having a giant success. Um, What you have to do is to ensure that that you diversify and also that the the resources and the benefits of that success are adequately redistributed within societies so as to produce dramatic spin-offs in the form of improved infrastructure education to establish the broad base for future growth and Denmark is one of the you know advanced economies widely thought of as being an absolute model of precisely that kind of effort to spread the benefits of growth. It's one of the societies, you know, which notoriously doesn't tolerate low wage labor. And so basically forces up the minimum wage, forces up the wages paid to all service sector workers so as to prevent divergences in productivity between sectors and the sort of American model of or the British model of very low paid, low wage sectors feeding the service sector needs of the more advanced economies. The, in the Manhattan model of the JP Morgans generating the huge incomes, which a poor low wage service sector then provides services for, that's not Denmark's, that's not Denmark's formula, never has been. Um, so like the Nordics, I mean, Norway is also a case in point, which has worked very effectively to offshore the oil and gas revenues as far as possible, establish a giant wealth fund, and then funnel the revenues back in the form of investment in public infrastructure and public investment generally. So there are there are ways of dealing with this kind of success. And there's no reason, I think, at this point to be overly alarmed about the um, about you know this extraordinary breakthrough the days of apart from anything else, the drugs appear to have like miracle cure effects on all sorts of other things like heart attack risk in general, just beyond just beyond obesity. And apparently 
since they act on the craving, there's a good chance they may actually affect the, the, you know, the parts of the brain which generate other sorts of cravings, so addiction problems in general, rather than just appetite. So they may have opened up, you know, an extraordinary um, Aladdin's cave here of opportunities. Yeah, I don't mean to um, downplay the miracles uh, that this drug seems to, yeah, be providing for a lot of people. And yet, uh, you know, it's the journalist in me uh, that is always probing for potential potential clouds on the horizon. Um, so, I mean, yeah, again... Um, the other potential economic distortion that's sometimes mentioned in this context is named after another country, namely the Netherlands. There's the so-called Dutch disease that can creep into an economy uh, in this context, potentially. And we've talked about this before, I dimly recall, but I thought this could be an opportunity to yeah, rehearse what exactly the Dutch disease is and how we can tell if it's infecting Denmark. So I think the um, the Dutch disease is this idea that the success of a highly export intensive sector and pharmaceuticals like that, there's only so many uh, diabetes and uh, weight reduction drugs that the Danes can consume. But likewise, there's only so much gas that the Dutch could consume. The, the idea is that that success crowds out other sectors of the economy. And it does that in, in a situation where you have a flexible exchange rate by generating huge export revenue that revenue when it's repatriated generates demand for your domestic currency that drives up your domestic currency in relative terms and that makes other goods that you export from that society less competitive and you could argue like what's not to like again this is a process of resource redistribution it it prioritizes the sector that's growing most rapidly and those export earnings are real income that can be used to buy foreign goods and so if you just simply um, allow the market mechanism to work through, what you will see is a surge of import demand. But it is a sexual redistribution. And we see this in raw material producing countries. There is a case made in by some people that uh, America's specialization in financial services and the export of American debt, government debt to the world is also a form of Dutch disease, right? Because it supports the value of the dollar um, relative to where it would be otherwise because people want dollars to buy US treasuries and that crowds out manufacturing goods and other sorts of exports and creates a permanent imbalance in the American balance of trade to the detriment of blue collar manufacturing jobs. Right? So this story repeats all over the world. There are different ways of dealing with it. Offshoring and sovereign wealth fund options is, is the one. You're very unlikely to do that, I think, in the case of Nova Nordisk, because it's a standard manufacturing company. It's not government owned, unlike you know uh, oil and gas sectors sometimes. I think the question to ask is really how powerful is this kind of effect in rich societies? Because you would you would expect to see it through a surge, you know, in a falling competitiveness in the non in the non dominant sectors. And since Denmark, as I was saying earlier on, already, if you like, chose deliberately to price itself out of kind of low wage sectors, you wouldn't expect the Danish economy to be particularly vulnerable. And indeed, if you look at the more sophisticated societies which have experienced these kind of surges in external revenue, the Dutch case originally, where the empirical evidence for the Dutch disease is actually quite weak, Australia is another case where the Dutch disease phenomenon has just not appeared over decades. Because why Australia? Because Australia is a huge exporter of, of uh, minerals, right, of iron ore, uh, notably, and coal. 
And you'd expect that to generate a displacement effect. It doesn't in the Australian economy. The Australian economy has grown decade after decade after decade, simply benefiting from the revenue that those successful sectors generate. And you do that by spreading it across a diversified, complex, modern society, which, sure, around the edges, around the mining camps or whatever, you will see displacement effects in the form of a huge acceleration of prices of goods and services in those areas, which makes it very expensive to do anything else there. But if you've got a big-ish economy like the Australian one or the Dutch, or I would imagine the Danish one as well, with diversification this hot spot of growth isn't necessarily going to damage the prospects and the spillovers, especially if it can be redistributed by an active state, can be very, very positive, of course. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, but we will be back in a second to continue talking about Novo Nordisk, the company that makes Ozempic and other anti-obesity drugs. Okay, so if we leave aside the potential or theoretical economic problems here, I'm curious about the potential power dynamics in this kind of situation between the Danish state and and Novo Nordisk and whether those could get distorted in this kind of situation. I mean, can can a state of this size contain a company of this size, so to speak? You know, it strikes me that, that you know, the corporate strategy of this one company is already affecting important state decisions, including the interest rates uh, set by the, the, the Danish Central Bank. So, yeah, um, how, how should we think about the power dynamics in this kind of situation? Is what's good for Novo Nordisk good for, for Denmark per se, ultimately? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, this. I mean, the the fact, so the interest rate decision runs through the Dutch disease argument. So as Novo Nordisk's export revenue surged, the effect is to drive the Danish currency upwards and to make other sectors of the economy less competitive. And so the central bank responds by lowering interest rates to offset the appreciation pressure. Switzerland does something similar on a huge scale to actually maintain the balance between its financial service sector, the inflow of money, into the economy through a safe haven and its desire to maintain a very active manufacturing export sector in which pharmaceuticals in fact play a key role. And so what the Swiss central bank does is to consistently intervene to keep the Swiss franc down. And you're beginning to see something similar going on in Denmark. So that's where that kind of linkage operates. I think there are two ways in which one can respond to this kind of problem. The the one that we're seeing in Denmark so far is actually to say, okay, fine, we have a problem here. How do we address it? Well, what we do, in fact, is we merge Novo Nordisk's, much of its biomedical research with publicly funded biomedical research. This is a sector we want to be big in. Uh, and so why not just basically go for a kind of national champion strategy? And we see a very wide range of cooperations between the Danish government uh, and Novo Nordisk, which include the Danish Genome Center, a national biobank, State Serum Institute, all of which are joint enterprises between Novo Nordisk's pharmaceutical heft and biomedical heft and Danish government money. And some of the spin-offs from that has been that the Danish Genome Center was able to establish a very rapidly, very early on the sequencing 
a facility for COVID-19 variants, which put Denmark ahead in managing the crisis. Um, so this is a sort of uh, state capitalist answer to your question. And in this case, of course, it's a not-for-profit owned entity. And so it's a state corporatist, maybe? That would be a better description because we're, you know, we're not in the zone. The other really fascinating move that Nova Nordisk has done is to say, right, okay, the underlying suggestion here is that because we're so powerful, our interests prevail in the redistribution of our resources over other people's interests. So one thing we can do is seek alignment of the public interest with ours. And then, but people will always be asking, well, are you manipulating? Are you essentially capturing the Danish government? Are you actually making the problem worse? So how could you avoid this? So the answer is randomization. So Novo Nordisk's foundation for scientific research actually allocates a portion of its research grants in a random fashion. They use a lottery system. So as to be able to say, like, hands-free, hands-off, stepping back, you know, it, what prevailed here was, in fact, a, a lottery process, not our, not our particular interest, right? So you have, to, you have to find ways of you, like, taking yourself out of the picture, and a randomization strategy does that. Interesting. I mean, I guess we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation. And so I, I did want to ask about the economic implications of anti-obesity drugs more generally. You know, we're talking about drugs developed by Novo Nordisk, among others, that can, yeah, as you mentioned, remove compulsive eating that can uh, also, yeah, lead to declines in obesity uh, and just, yeah, basically make these phenomena disappear from society. And I'm just, yeah, what are the downstream economic effects of that? Will there be shrinking economies of fast food and junk food, potentially? Will there be maybe be bigger profits in airline travel due to, to less fuel needed? I mean, how are markets already kind of pricing th those possibilities? And <laughs> Your airline travel one was, a, was, a, was priceless. But no, I mean, you were early commenting earlier on that journalists are always looking for a kind of counter to a story, right, to give it, give it spice. And I, I mean, market analysts are no different. So, so Walmart apparently announced last fall that it was already seeing a fall in you know, craving-driven snack consumption as a result of the uptake of Azempic and Wegovi amongst American consumers. And so over the following days, Walmart's shares sold off, uh, Mondelez's shares sold off, so they make Oreos, uh, the Modelo brand sold off, and they make Cheez-Its and Pringles. I mean, there was really like a Costco and Kroger's shares sold. So there's a sort of, you know, the market just needs a logic for some kind of story. And clearly, weight loss drugs are bad for stacking. And so you sell stacking when weight loss drugs are doing well. I mean, all the way along the line, this happened. So when it was shown that it had benign effects on kidney health, like all of the, all of the producers of kidney dialysis providers sold off. Medical devices sold off because fundamentally, all of these businesses make money from ill health. And so if we've discovered a wonder drug that is actually going to make hundreds of millions of people healthier, you don't want to be in any of those sectors. I mean, it was it was an absolutely extraordinary kind of ripple effect. And in some cases, really very dramatic. So highly specialized medical devices manufacturers took 30, 40, 50% hits in the week, you know, as the sort of momentum built around this uh, weight loss, diabetes success story. So there really is a sort of seesawing effect in the markets, where if something goes up, other things go down. 
And uh, it's and kind of you know it's it's kind of mind blowing when you stand back and think about that. In other words, it's a little bit like war being good for defense stock, right? There really is a sense in which substantial parts of the S and P five hundred and other major stock indices are hinged on chronic ill health as a driver of market demand for various types of either on the one hand the things that cause the ill health or the medical devices that that enable us to deal with the consequences there you go you know uh, something that journalists and the markets have in common we're looking for the downsides of things i guess but we do have to leave the conversation off here for now but we will be back as always next week Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.